0: Well, good morning to you. Uh, I'm Camper Monday, associate pastor here. uh, And I also would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. Uh, We're glad to to have you here, so welcome. Those of you that are are regulars may remember that we have been in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We were out of that uh, last weekend during uh, our Easter celebration, but we are back uh, this week. Today we we pick up, again, with our sermon series, The King Has Come, uh, because we have been looking at Mark and how the King Jesus has come and is establishing His kingdom. And in particular, this morning, we're going to be considering Jesus the King of the storm. If you remember, we opened with our call to worship, who is this King of glory? Well, in part, we're going to answer that uh, this morning uh, in Mark chapter 4. That is our our text this morning, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It's found on page 839. If you're using the pew bible and since we've been out of mark for a a couple of weeks what i want to do is start by reminding us of the context where are we in this particular gospel and and where are we in this particular chapter chapter four Uh, so if you'll go ahead and open up your bibles to mark four i'm going to go back to verse one again jesus began to teach beside the sea jesus was teaching beside the sea of galilee And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So if you've got the picture, Jesus has gotten into a boat uh, so that his voice could be amplified off of the water. uh, And then everyone on the shore would be able to to hear it. So there's a large crowd and Jesus is teaching. And how is he teaching? We find that out in verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And then if you remember three weeks ago, we looked at the, the parable of the sower. And then a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the lamp under a basket, uh, the parable of the growing seed, the parable of the mustard seed. And then here is where Mark ends this part of Jesus' uh, teaching section in his gospel and concludes with these last two verses, verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them and they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so that brings us to our text this morning, uh, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Uh, But let's take a moment to pray before we hear God's word. Our gracious God, we thank you once again for speaking to us through your word, for giving us the Bible. We thank you that by the work of your spirit, you teach us, you convince us, you change our hearts. And we need you to do that again. We need you to continue that great work in our hearts. Lord, we confess there are places that are hard and we need you to touch them and bring them to life. We need understanding. And we would pray this morning that we would, would not only do what we're often prone to do and just gather interesting information, but Lord, that you would really transform us, not only as individuals, but also as a body. And we thank you, our King, that you have come. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So hear the word of God from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that same day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus then said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even wind and sea obey him? This is the word of God. Well, as we walk through this passage together this morning, to to help us better hear God's word, I want us to consider the passage in three parts. The calm, the conflict, and the cross. The calm, the conflict, and the cross. And so first, the calm. Maybe the first thing that that caught your attention. Uh, Our our Bible translators have even given the uh, the little editorial heading, uh, Jesus calms the storm or Jesus calms a storm. But it's not only boats that face danger on the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you have been there before and you have seen this, but today on the western shore, parking lots have warning signs, uh, warning drivers of high winds because waters can get rough very quickly and large waves can swamp parked cars, cars that are parked along what just moments earlier seemed like a safe beach. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. 700 feet. That is a long way down. Now, just 30 miles north is Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high. So, what happens is you get this cold air from about 10,000 feet higher rushing down into the valley and clashing with that colder air, I'm sorry, with that warmer air. The, 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 the cold air coming down, clashing with the warmer air on the water below. And the result, you get storms. Sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee. Now, most of the men in this boat with Jesus were fishermen. This was not a surprise to them that there are storms that come up. Uh, they're used to this kind of thing. But this particular storm must have been tremendous. It must have scared them like nothing ever before. Because they are terrified. They think that they are going to die. They say, we are perishing. And then Jesus speaks into the storm. Jesus rebukes the storm. Peace, be still. More literally, be quiet and stay quiet. Some of you parents have said that before. It doesn't always work with children. But those simple words... Be quiet and stay quiet, and the storm obeys. Now, speaking of children, I'd like to read part of this account to you from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It is a uh, children's Bible, uh, one of my daughter's favorite. But actually what uh, draws my attention to this today is that this was first given to me by Dr. Claire Davis, Professor Emeritus of Westminster Theological Seminary, and he gave it to me and he said, Camper, you will enjoy reading this to your children, but I'm actually giving it to you. Because when I prepare to preach, if the text that I am preaching on is in this children's Bible, I will use this as part of my study. Because the the clarity, the simplicity, and the power of the gospel can be seen on every single page. When Dr. Davis speaks, I listen So I have prepared that way today. So let's go back into the story. And this is how my daughter would hear it. The disciples screamed, help, wake up, quick, Jesus. Jesus opened his eyes. Rescue us, save us, don't you care? Of course Jesus cared. And this was the very reason he had come, to rescue them and to save them. Jesus stood up and spoke to the storm. Hush, he said. That's all. And the strangest thing happened. The wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. They had heard it before, of course. It was the same voice that created them in the very beginning. They listened to Jesus and they did what he said. Immediately, the wind stopped. The water calmed down. It glittered innocently in the moonlight and lapped quietly against the side of the boat. As if nothing had happened, the little boat bobbed gently up and down. There was a deep stillness and a great quiet all around. Jesus speaks and the storm obeys. Again, the storm obeys like a little child. Verse 39 states, there was a great calm. So from a Category 5 hurricane to nothing. The text literally says there was a mega calm, a mega calm, silence, smooth as glass, not even a ripple. Now, one thing that's helpful for us to know to, to, to get into the boat with these disciples, in ancient cultures, the sea was viewed as the most dangerous threat to man, the most uncontrollable and unpredictable part of their world. N.T. Wright points out that for the Jews, the sea had come to symbolize the dark power of evil, threatening to destroy God's good creation, God's people, and God's purposes. Now, this is a sudden and vicious storm, fascinating for sure. But the story is actually much less about the storm and much more about the power of Jesus. So believing the sea to be the most dangerous threat to man, ancient cultures agreed that only God, or the gods, could control it. Uh, We not only see this outside of the biblical text, but we can see it in other parts of Scripture. Uh, You remember the book of Jonah. You go back to Jonah. Jonah is in a a boat uh, with a lot of other men. These other men are from, from various cultures and backgrounds. And a sudden storm overtakes their boat. And they are scared, just like here, the disciples Scared to death, and so the sailors, not only do they throw, start throwing everything out of the boat, but they also begin calling on their gods. And when it doesn't work, the captain goes after Jonah and says, Would you call on your god? Rebukes him. Call on your god. Maybe one of our gods will listen and stop this storm. But here in Mark 4, I want you to notice something. Jesus calms the storm, but note that Jesus calls on no higher power. For Jesus himself is that higher power. And Jesus doesn't make a big scene. You know, I can imagine reading this as a, as a kid for the first time and thinking they woke him up. Uh-oh, here it goes. All right, boys, stand back. Let me roll up the sleeves. No, that's not what Jesus does. No, no words of incantation. He simply speaks. A couple of words and the storm listens. Jesus does what only God can do. The wind and the sea listen because God has spoken. And one commentator calls this a display of Jesus' infinite power. A picture of his power over all things, all people, all of creation. And so when, the, when Jesus rescues the disciples from this fierce storm what we're seeing is this and again dr Wright, we are witnessing something which says in concrete terms what the parables earlier in the chapter were saying in word pictures god's sovereign power is being unleashed god's kingdom is at hand god's sovereign power is being unleashed and god's kingdom is at hand well there's more You see, Jesus' display of power creates tension. And that leads to our next point, the conflict. Did you notice the conflict here? Did you notice how this particular story ends? Let me reread those last couple of verses for us. Now, picking up with the last part of verse 39. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Did you notice that no one is celebrating? I mean, you would think Jesus, wake up and save us. Okay, let me stop the storm. It stops. They'd be like, yes, this is what we knew you would do. Thank you. And they would be celebrating and throwing a party on that boat. No. This is very different than, say, the the healing of the paralytic. When people did celebrate and and worship, they they were amazed, and it was so full of joy. But here, the disciples are filled with fear. Again, I'd like to read this in the Jesus Storybook Bible. The little boat bobbed gently up and down. There was a deep stillness. And a great quiet all around. Then Jesus turned to his wind-torn friends. Why are you scared? Did you forget who I am? Did you believe your fears instead of me? Jesus' friends were quiet. As quiet as the wind and the waves. And into their hearts came a different kind of storm. What kind of man is this, they asked themselves anxiously, Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, we see in verse 41, it says of the disciples, they were filled with great fear. Maybe you're reading in the the NIV, they were terrified. Another translation, they were absolutely terrified. The words Mark is using here, he is trying to elevate fear to a whole new level because that is what was experienced. And so he most literally writes, they were afraid with a mega fear. So from the storms, mega calm in verse 39, to to the disciples, mega fear here in verse 41. But why? Why are the disciples so scared? They're with Jesus. They're with Jesus. Why would you be scared with Jesus? Jesus. Well, part of it is this. They're scared because in the words of one theologian, they have just realized that Jesus is as unmanageable as the storm itself. Jesus has just shown that he is more powerful than any storm. So Jesus must actually be more unmanageable than the storm. A God who is uncontrollable, a God who is unpredictable. And Jesus' unmanageable power terrifies the disciples. If you remember when we went through the series with R.C. Sproul, he said this was an encounter with God's holiness that they were not expecting. And they are scared to death. They have no category for a person like this. None. Now, you may not realize it, but, you know, when we meet new people, we've got categories. We don't necessarily consciously go there, but it it helps us check how are we going to relate to this or that person. There is no category for a person like this and even with hurricanes i mean though they're uncontrollable at least we have categories category three four five gives us an idea of what to expect but what kind of man is this yes the storm was terrifying but now jesus is more terrifying he's not domesticated he's not safe In the words of Bible scholar Alan Cole, the disciples wanted a friendly, familiar, human Jesus, not a supernatural son of God. And aren't we so often the same way? I'll take the domesticated Jesus. We want a friendly, familiar, comfortable human Jesus. You know, as I I think about this, I think this is one of the reasons that our our culture at large is much more comfortable with Christmas than with Easter. This morning in our first service, we did a baptism. A little baby. Baby cries. Baby's cute. Little human being. Can't hurt me. And so we're much more comfortable with Christmas. Baby Jesus. But all of a sudden, you get to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are talking about the God-man. Who was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day rose again, he conquered death. My friends, that is an infinite, unmanageable power. And yet, we want a Jesus we can predict, a Jesus we can manage. I mean, think about it for a moment. What kind of God do you want? Do you want a God whose main goal is to give you all the things that you desire? Do you want a God who who doesn't have to rebuke the storms because he doesn't allow them to come in your life in the first place? Well, if I'm going to be honest with you, my answer to both of those questions is yes. Much of the time, that is what I want. Often, my goal is to live a storm-free life rather than a faith-filled life. Rather than a life of learning to trust Jesus, step by step, learning to trust Him in everything, including life's storms, the deepest, the darkest storms that life has to throw at us. But rather than Lord and Savior, so much of the time we'd rather have a genie in the lamp. A genie where we could just rub the lamp, come on out, ask me what I want, I'll tell you I've got a list, please don't limit it to three wishes, And give me what I want. But the good news is, no. By God's grace, we get much more than a genie. We get the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God of the universe. We get Jesus. And yes, as followers of Jesus, we have friendship with him. Yes, we do. But we do not manage him. We do not call the shots. Jesus is our master. And our king. He isn't safe, but he's good. Now, maybe you've heard that reference before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Kind of on to children's books today. But another C.S. Lewis reference develops this truth further because, if you know, the Chronicles of Narnia are much more than children's books. If you've ever read The Silver Chair, you'll remember a young girl, Jill Pole. She encounters Aslan, the lion, for the first time, the Christ figure throughout the Chronicles. And she encounters him beside a stream. Now Jill is extremely thirsty. She is so overjoyed that she has found this stream. And then she sees this huge lion right beside it. This is their interaction. "'Are you thirsty?' asked the lion. "'I'm dying of thirst,' said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. "'May I? Could I? "'Would you mind going away while I do?' asked Jill. "'The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. "'And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, "'she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain "'to move aside for her convenience.' The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic now. Will will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, asked Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty by now that without noticing it, she had actually come a step nearer. "Do, Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It it just said it. Oh, I I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. "I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. There is no other life giver than Jesus. No other life giver. And he gives himself to us. Again, we do not manage him. He is our master and our king. He isn't safe, but he's good. And we are called to trust him. We're called to trust Jesus in everything. We're called to trust Jesus in the midst of life's storms. We're called to take him at his word, to trust him in everything, especially and especially when we don't understand how all the pieces go together. Especially when we look out and we say, this doesn't make sense. He says, do not fear, trust me. But like the disciples, we struggle to trust him when our hearts are crying out, Do you not care? Do you not care? You know, one of the great things that Mark as a story writer is doing here, if you you think of a lot of the stories about the disciples that we read, oftentimes we sit outside of them and we kind of laugh and go, These guys are like the Three Stooges, just another bumbling idiot. How could you say that, Peter? But no, here I think we can really relate to them. Mark is drawing us in, inviting us to be honest, inviting us to be honest with the disciples in verse 38. Are you asleep? Do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care about my declining health? Do you not care about my financial struggles? Do you not care about my broken relationships? My broken dreams. Where are you? Do you not care? Anyone who has ever lived the life of faith at some point in fear has cried out from their hearts and maybe from their lips. Do you not care? And maybe that, if you were to examine your heart this morning, maybe that is the cry of your heart as you come here. Maybe a sorrowful resignation. Maybe an angry accusation. Do you not care? Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. The disciples had been doubting whether Jesus really cared for them. They had lost faith in his love for them. Hence their question, do you not care? It was the cruelest question they could have asked. Because the very reason he was in the boat, indeed in the world, and the reason he was going to die on the cross for them, was precisely because he cared for them. Yet they were not persuaded in their hearts that this was so. And as a result, they allowed the storm to come between them and the assurance of their master's love for them. We are like them in so many ways. When storms arise, we doubt his love. We allow our faith to be diverted from its anchor in the cross. And lose our moorings in the storms of life. So how do we know Jesus cares? That leads to our final point. The cross. The cross. But you may be asking, where do we see the cross of Jesus here in this passage? I mean, we're, we're only in Mark chapter 4. We haven't gotten very far yet. That, that's at the end of the gospel. No, it's found here too. It's found in the storm. Ultimately, it's found in the king of the storm. Do you remember when I referred to Jonah earlier? Well, several commentators make the connection between the calming of the storm in Jonah and the calming of the storm here in Mark. Mark uses almost identical language to that used in Jonah 1. Tim Keller highlights similarities between the two stories. Here here are a few. Okay, both Jesus and Jonah are at sea in a boat. Both boats are overtaken by a storm. And if you compare the description of each of those storms, they're almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep during the storm. And as you know, in both instances, the sailors have to come to the sleepers and rebuke them for sleeping. Get up and help, we are perishing. And in both cases, there's a miraculous intervention by God, and the sea is calmed. And finally, both stories end with the sailors being more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Now, interesting, Jesus ties the two stories together in Matthew 12 when he refers to himself as the new Jonah, as someone greater than Jonah. Okay, I know we're not in Matthew, we're in Mark. But remember, as we, and I think we've mentioned this before, as we journey through Mark's gospel together, remember that Mark's gospel unfolds, the entire gospel unfolds in the shadow of the cross. So we can never read any one part of it without chapters 15 and 16 in mind. The very gospel truths that we celebrated last weekend. Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. So here, here in Mark 4, we see the cross through the most profound similarity between the two storm stories. Jonah, what did he say to the sailors? Jonah told the sailors to throw him into the sea so that the raging storm would be silenced and they would be saved. In other words, Jonah said, if I die, you live. Jesus Jesus gave himself to be thrown into the sea of death so that the raging storm of sin and brokenness would be defeated, that we might be saved. If I die, you live. You see, Jesus is the true Jonah. Jesus' death on the cross has forever silenced the ultimate storm of sin and death for those who would trust in him and in him alone. And one day Jesus will calm all of life's storms because at the cross he dove headfirst into the ultimate storm and took it down. Silenced it. One day all of life's storms will be silenced. Silenced. You know how the story ends. You can read it in the back of your Bibles. One day, a new heaven and a new earth. The fullness of God's kingdom. A mega calm. A mega peace. Shalom. Well, as we await that day, and not only as we await it, but as we anticipate that day, we must continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. We must continually look to the cross of Jesus. Jesus. To the degree that you look to the cross of Jesus, to the degree that you begin to comprehend what Jesus has done for us on that cross, to that degree, you will know that He cares. To that degree, at the core of your being, you will know. And that is why we tell the story week in and week out. That is why we speak the story to each other. That is why we remember it in the church calendar throughout the year. That is why we have a celebration like we did last week. Because knowing his love transforms everything. Victor Hugo, the French author, once wrote, Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Will we become most convinced that we are loved? when we look to the cross of Jesus and convinced of his love, we are able to trust him. We are able to trust him more and more and more in everything, including life storms. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious master and our king, Oh, we thank you that you have had mercy on us, that you have pursued us in love. And we pray, we pray that you would continue to fix our eyes, fix our hearts on you, Lord Jesus, that we would continue to continue to look to the cross, that our hearts would become more and more convinced that we are loved and convinced of your love, we would grow in our trust of you. We would grow trusting you as we repent, as we step out in faith, as we we learn to love one another, as we love you. Help us to trust you more. We believe, but help our unbelief. And we thank you that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.